Well, good morning. My name is Mike. I'm one of the elders. Um, happy you're here this morning. I do have an announcement, so thank you for saying that, Stephen, because then I remembered. Um, we have a uh, we have a church-wide barbecue that we're going to do at the beginning of next month. Okay, uh, we actually planned this for last month, and then we were kind of kicking around some ideas for it, and then all of a sudden. We were like, hey, what if we actually did backpacks for kids, and our goal is to bring in people from the neighborhood to come and hang out with us, and uh, we thought, man, if we were able to give something to the community to bring them in, bridge a gap, build a relationship, backpacks was the thing. So we're going to do that. We're, we're going to uh, put some backpacks together and give them out. We're going to do some advertisement. We're going to have some hot dogs. Uh, we're going to have some games um, and just a fun time to hang out with the neighborhood. So this is our ask, okay? We're going to come together, united as a church, right? And we're going, we're going to put some backpacks together. Our goal, our goal, let me just tell you this. We have a goal and then we have what we want to fill. We have a goal of 100 backpacks. That's what we want. We want 100 backpacks to fill up and to give out. We're going to fill 50 and then once we get to that 50, we'll let you know and then we're going to make that push for 100 but we're going to fill 50. Our goal is 100. There's a supply list in the lobby. Travis has actually talked with um, some of uh, Fort Wayne Community Schools, like a teacher. Uh, I think he's made a phone call. So we, we've kind of got a, a holistic list. We're going to get, we're going to buy 50 backpacks um, that are kind of gender neutral. And then we're looking for you guys to chip in to bring these supplies in. So the supply list is in the lobby. The date is August 3rd. So we're going we're gonna to need these things in like two weeks. So get out there, hit those back-to-school sales, uh, get the things on the supply list. We're going to fill the backpacks, and then that event is from 11 o'clock to 1 o'clock on August 3rd. Okay, so mark your calendars, get that Saturday open, and, um, and we're going to be here. We're going we're gonna to bring in the community. We really just want to love them well. Uh, it's something that we have set out to do. And this is one of the ways that we're going to try to get to accomplish that. So August 3rd, 11 to 1, get some school supplies. The list is in the lobby. Everybody get that? The list is in the lobby. So grab one of those. Um, hey, I'm preaching this morning, if you didn't guess that. Uh, so thank you. Um, I, I am going to say this every time because I want you to remember uh, that it is a privilege for me to share God's word with you. So thank you for letting me do that. And um, I, I love doing it. I love spending time in God's Word, preparing to uh, share with you. And um, it is something that I don't, I don't take lightly, and it's something that I am, I'm just extremely grateful for. So thank you for letting me do that. Uh, we're going to continue our series in Mark today. We're going to be in Mark 8 if you want to flip open there uh, now. <clears throat> and I just want, I want to share... Uh, some thoughts with you before we kind of head into the text, because I was thinking this week and even this morning, I, I was just, for some reason, I was just really emotional while we were singing, and uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't figure out why, and sometimes I'm an emotional person, so sometimes I'm just emotional to be emotional, sometimes I'm emotional because of the gospel, sometimes I'm emotional because I'm my kids or my wife, but I was just really emotional this morning, and I felt the Lord sharing with me that I'm emotional because he's reminding me that I'm his all the time. Just, I'm his. And that is just such a, uh, a, a confident and, and 
freeing thought that no matter where I'm at in life and no matter, no matter what I'm doing or what boxes I'm trying to check off or anything like that, that I am, I am always his. And he really showed that to me this morning. And that is uh, incredible because here's what I was thinking about this week. Because I think sometimes I forget how big the God that we serve is. He, he, he is he's huge. He's magnificent. And I sometimes forget that because I get wrapped up in my life that I live day in and day out. I get lost in, in my little space of being a husband, a father, an employee, a friend, a son, a brother, even, even an elder sometimes. Because sometimes when, when I'm even focused on my own spiritual growth, uh, it's often about my habits or my actions and striving to become a better person or more Christ-like by behavior modification in my own strength. And that doesn't work. That's not how God works. My goal today, as we spend some time in the Word, is to remind some of you how big God is and how He actually works in your life. Your sin is not too big for God. Your marriage issues are not too big for God. Your singleness is not too big for God. Your bad decisions are not too bad for God. Your loneliness is not too big for God. Your wayward child is not too far gone for God. Your addiction is not too strong for God. Your depression is not too deep for God. And your feelings of weakness is, and your most vulnerable parts of life are not too much for God. Mm. For some of you today, I want to remind you or show you for the very first time who this God is, the God that I talk about for the saints in this room, that he never fails, is the God who is calling you to himself because you are searching for something outside of or bigger than yourself. The one who made the blind to see, the one who made the deaf to hear, the one who does the impossible, the one who put death in its place, it's his compassion that gives me the freedom to rejoice in him instead of being constrained by my fear. So I get to proclaim these things to you because he is who he says he is. I get to share from his word and we get to read about who he is because he has stood fast the test of time. He has given us his word. And we, have, we were able to show that to the kids yesterday that he is a, a treasure far greater than anything that we own or have. So it's with that mindset I want to come to the text this morning and go, and how big is God? And what do I believe God's word says about that? So just pray with me, and then we'll stand and read some scripture. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for allowing us to be real with you and just say, sometimes we don't understand. Sometimes I don't understand how big you are. Sometimes I just forget God, so we just pray that you would give us Jesus. That you would, that you would help us understand that he, he is the bread of life. He is the living water. And so, God, I pray that as we spend time in your word this morning, that you would make that abundantly clear. That through the tears and emotion, that this is no joke. That this is your word, and it is living and active. It's breathing, and it's working in the lives of your people. 
So God, I pray that you would clearly communicate your word this morning to us. God, we thank you and we love you. Amen. All right, let's stand up and read God's word. We're going to read Mark 8, 1 through 10. We stand because we believe that this is God's true word. It is holy and set apart, given to us. So we stand out of respect. It says, In those days, uh, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered them, How can one feed these people with the bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And, he, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said, that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up all the broken pieces, left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away and immediately got on uh, into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. You may be seated. Uh, any, uh, any sense of... Uh, flashback as we read through this passage, right? Just a, just a couple pa- uh, chapters ago, uh, Jesus fed the 5,000, right? This is Jesus feeding the 4,000. And the stories are similar, so similar, in fact, that some people actually try to use these two passages to discredit Scripture. They say, well, look, we can't keep our stories straight, even chapters apart, right? Is it 4,000 or is it 5,000? Is it women and children? Is there no women and children? You know, what location was it in? Well, if you actually study the passage, it's very easy to discredit or to see that it, that is a failed attempt um, because you can see that there is enough differences to show that they're actually two separate events. So Jesus does a very similar miracle, weeks, maybe a couple months apart, uh, two different locations. And so why would we do that? And I would we record both? There's plenty of miracles that Jesus did that weren't recorded, right? So why do we have two of these miracles that are very, very similar recorded at just chapters apart in God's Word for us to read about? Well, I believe that there's several reasons for that, and one of them is to understand who the gospel is for. So Jim read a passage this morning out of Romans 11 that talks about uh, uh, Israel and the Gentiles. Now, <clears throat> you have to understand that according to Scripture, there are only two types of people, uh, Jews and Gentiles. So if you're not of the nation of Israel, you're a Gentile. You're everybody else. And so what Scripture says throughout it is that, hey, the gospel came, it was for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. And out of Romans 11, Jim read, uh, we see that that Paul's talking to the Romans and he's saying, uh, look, the scripture, the gospel is meant now uh, as Jesus has come for everybody. 
The gospel is everyone's. And the gospel is used, in fact, in order to show the Jewish people and make them jealous and say, look, this is the God of everyone. It's used to show people and say, hey, uh, I want what they have. And that's the question that we pondered this morning. Do we have an infectious love for Jesus that says, man, I want what they, what they have? And so to understand this principle, I want to show you a map, and I think we're going to be able to have it on the screen here, because one of the big, we're going to study a couple different differences of chapter 6 and chapter 8, uh, but one of the biggest differences is location. Okay, sweet, we do have the map, Okay. So if you go back and look uh, in, your, in your Bible, uh, maybe start at like, I don't know where we want to start at. Uh, Jesus walks on the water in like 645-ish. Okay? That's up uh, in Bethsaida, right? Okay, that, so that's like northwest of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so you see the big sea. Okay, now uh, Jesus... Uh, walks on the water from there. They're heading to Gennesaret, right? Which is in 653. They cross the sea and Jesus heals the sick there, right? Then there's some traditions and commandments, right? We talked about that. Then we talked about the Syrophoenician woman, which, which is not really on this map, but if you headed like where Capernaum is and you just head straight northeast, you're going to get to Tyre and Sidon, which you see that in um, 20, 724, right? So that's where he is. Then Jesus heals the deaf man in 723, and he says he uh, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon, which Tyre is south and Sidon is north, and that's where uh, uh, Pastor Nate shared, well, why does he go north just to go south? Because after you see Jesus healing the deaf man, he comes down and he goes to Decapolis, which is, trying to find that for you, there it is, uh, 31, right? So he goes from Tyre to Sidon, which is north, and then he goes all the way around back to Bethsidia, and then uh, Decapolis is like down in this, this area down here, north, or, or excuse me, southeast of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, well, why is that important? Number one, I'm a visual visual guy, and so I like the map. Also, this is a great time to flip to the back of your Bible and look at your little biblical maps. Who does that anymore, right? You have a map back there of, of Galilee during the time of Jesus, and you're going to be able to see all of those things. Now, uh, the reason that this is important is because just like our world today, a lot of times geographically, there's just a certain concentration of people, right? So when he is at Bethsaida, and Gennesaret, he's dealing with mostly Jewish people, and you see that in the interactions that he has. And then he takes off, and he goes to Syrophoenicia, right? And, and that's when uh, Nate was talking to us about um, <clears throat> this, this woman that he goes to heal, who is a hybrid of, uh, uh, of uh, nationality, and so she's kind of an outcast, and he relates her back to the woman at the well, I'm mentioning these things to you. Please just make mental notes because we're coming back to them. Okay? He mentions the woman at the well and, and her being an outcast. And he says, look, now he's, he's starting to bring the gospel. He's taking the, the disciples with him. 
And they're going, whoa, wait a minute. Why are you talking to the Sumerian? Oh, wait, wait. What do you, why are you talking to the Syrophoenician? Number one, why are you talking to a woman? And then they, they go on this crazy journey down to the capitalist, which now is mostly Gentiles, right? This is no longer Jewish territories. We're not really dealing with Pharisees and, and Sadducees local. They are probably following him to critique him, but locally who he's actually talking to is an entirely different group of people than when he fed the 5,000. So he's preparing to do a miracle to those who are grafted in. These are not the Jewish people that he came for first. This is taking the gospel, the good news, and he's showing the now Gentiles. Also, if you want to know, um, I think my map was funky because I was on there before, but Capernaum to like Tyre and Sidon is like 30 miles. So it was probably about the same distance if you, as the crow flies from Capernaum to like Amatha, which is in the Decapolis region. So if you just walked that distance, um, I, was re- I think like people walk like three miles an hour on average. So you could, you could do it in a day. It'd just be a really long walk. It's like 30 miles. Uh, I don't want to do that, by the way. But that's where Jesus is. That's, where he, that's what he's doing. He's, he's kind of moving throughout Galilee or Palestine, and he is... He's teaching and he's doing miracles. Why does he do two miracles back to back? One is location. I think he is, he is speaking to a, a different nationality of people and he's showing them, look, this gospel is for the Jews and it is also for the Gentiles. And we see that being exercised through many different miracles that he does. But now that our memories are jogged with where Jesus is and where he's been and where he's kind of going, the location, there's four things I want to highlight in the text today for you. Things that I believe that God wants us to know about him, right? And that's what I'm, the song, the very first song was, man, this is the God of salvation. You get to come and know his heart. And I believe that that is what God wants us to see this morning in this second account of a feeding of a massive amount of people is I just think he wants us to know his heart. And so these are the things, uh, you could probably take this sermon several different ways, but these are the things that God revealed to me this week about his heart in this passage of scripture. And so we're just going to break it down in a couple different sections. But it says, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. Okay, the first thing that I want you to to see, to note, uh, is that he is compassionate. He is compassionate. Now, you're like, wow, that's nice revelation, Pastor Mike. It says that right there in the text. However, I think that the depth of compassion here is, is incredible, something that I didn't see before. Remember, I was nervous about preaching this passage. It's a repeat sermon? No, it's not. He is showing the depth of his compassion. How? One, he knew them. He knew these people. There's 4,000 men plus women and children, and he knew them. It says... Uh, He knew where they came from, how far they've been traveling, how long they've been with him. 
And he knows that if he sends them away for a long distance, that they're going to faint. So he knew them, who they were, where they were from. He knew that they had a need, that they were hungry. He was listening. He was aware of who he was teaching. And he knew the outcome if they left without food. Now, with Jesus, we've seen over the last several chapters, compassion. We see him acting on that compassion. We see uh, the blind, the deaf, uh, the spiritually oppressed, and he's healing them. And he is acting compassionately. This is the first time that we see where he speaks and he says, I have compassion. He says, I have compassion on these people. His compassion was followed by action. And this is what I see is so cool about the compassion that we see here is it's twofold. One, the compassion is for everybody. It is for those grafted in as well as those who he came for, his people. So it is the Israelites and it is the Jews. And he has made this crazy journey around the Sea of Galilee to prove his point, that he is willing to go anywhere and do anything and share with anybody in order they might know the love of Jesus Christ. He does that with the Syrophoenician. He does that with the woman at the well. And now he does that with the Gentiles in the area of Decapolis, which is these 10 cities of, of, of Gentiles. And he goes all this way and he says, man, the gospel's for everybody. Let me feed you. He sees a need and he meets a need, right? He sees a need and then he wants, he wants to do something about it. He's compassionate. So we see two forms of compassion. One, a deep love for those whom he wants to come and know him. And two, a physical need that he sees that he wants to meet. That's where we see that Roman 11 passage coming into play, where he says, hey, man, this is for, this is for everybody, the gospel for everyone. So we pick up in verse 4, and his disciples answer him. Right? He wants to, to give them food. The disciples answer, and they say, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Okay. The next thing I want you to see is that he is creatively powerful. And I don't use creatively just so that I have two C's. I use creatively because this is what he's doing, is he's being creative in the way that he provides for the needs of the people. See, we have a similarity again. Chapter 6, chapter 8, the disciples ask a question. Chapter 6, they said, hey, we'll run to town. We'll grab some food and we'll come back. It'll be about 200 denarii. That's not the question that they asked here. In chapter 6, they're looking for a practical application to meet the, the need of the people that Jesus wants to meet. That's chapter 6. Number 1, that would tell us that there's a, they're in a different location as well because Although they were in a desolate place last time, they were at least in a desolate place close enough where they could go buy some bread and come back. In this desolate place, they ask a completely different question. And they say, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? No offer of taking a walk to go get bread this time. It's just, where's it going to come from? The disciples ask that different question, and the question can be taken one of two different ways. The most popular way is, Wow, we got some dense disciples. 
which oftentimes they are. I'm not going to lie. They ask some silly questions from time to time. However, in this scenario, after studying the passage, I don't necessarily think that they are dense. I think that the Greek helps us to understand this word, how. Either they were dense disciples or they were expectant disciples. And I think, I, I truly think that they were expectant. Because that how word, how can one feed, is from what author or from what source can one feed from? So they're not looking necessarily for a practical application to get the needs met. They're saying, where is this going to come from? Knowing that just a few months ago, they saw him do it. So they don't want to necessarily tell him to do it but they're expectant. How? From what source? And then it says, from what source can one feed? And that feed also means, is also translated, satisfy. They, I believe, understood at this point that this was more than just food. That these people were looking for, they were there for three days. They knew that. Jesus knew that. Nobody had food for three days. And all of a sudden, Jesus wants to provide them with food. And I think they knew how can one, from what source, will these people be satisfied? And then God answers their question with a question, or Jesus does. Uh, and I mean, it, it is literally, this is my, this is my favorite line in the, in the whole passage. And I know that there's some inference here. But I imagine, Jesus is not cocky, but I imagine he just kind of like held out his arms and was like, how many loaves do you have? Right? Like, they say, well, how are we going to do it? And he goes, how many loaves do you have? Watch this. Like, that's how I feel like he is in, the sense, in this instance. And so he decides to create something, to provide something ex nihilo, out of nothing. Right? Because if they had... Seven loaves, which is what they said, and a few fish, that's going to be gone in just a second, right? With 4,000 people, that's gone. So what happens then with the rest of the fish, right? And I had a conversation this week about that. Like, how did that really happen? Like, did, did they just take it and then it just like refilled? Or did they take and then it never left? Or, well, I don't really know, but it's cool to think about, right? I mean, it's just crazy that there's all of a sudden something out of absolutely nothing. And that's exactly how our God works. Because if you go all the way back to Genesis, what did he create? Ex nihilo. Looking for a little response here. What did he create? Everything. Right? Six days, man. He just spoke, and it was. That is incredible. Our God is huge. And he makes it happen. And here we are on a hillside in a desolate place and he says, hey, the people are hungry, and he creates out of absolutely nothing, and he meets a need. So in verse 6, he directs the crowd, right, to sit down on the ground. He takes the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to these also should be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied. Same exact word as feed in verse 4. 
they were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, and there were seven baskets full. He's compassionate. He's creatively powerful. He'll, he'll make something out of nothing. He'll make water spew from a rock, right? He uh, also, his supply meets and often exceeds demand. His supply meets and often exceeds demand. They were were hungry, and they just wanted something to eat. And Jesus makes something out of nothing, so much so that they have leftovers. Let's look at how he does this. He lays it out. He directs the crowd to sit down. They sit. He uh, He takes the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciple. So I said, well, what? Why is Jesus giving thanks to himself for the broken bread, right? Well, this passage tells us that we should pray before every meal. I'm just kidding. That's not true. That's not what he's doing here. He's giving thanks. And this is why he's giving thanks. It's because no matter what blessing that comes out of Jesus, because we have to remember, right, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. And so he knows that in his divinity, he can make it happen. Bam, I create it, and you can have it. But he knows that in his humanity, he needs his Father. And so he gives thanks, knowing that every blessing that comes from God, not from man, but every blessing that comes from God is through his people. And just like that, he does the same thing with them, because he's fully God and fully man. He does the same thing with the disciples. He gives thanks. He says, God is the one that provides. It is through my hands. And then he gives that to the disciples so that he can serve the people through his disciples. And so that application is very, very important. When we start to think about how God works in our lives and how big he is and what he can do, is that there is no blessing that comes from these hands. Nothing. I can do nothing. There is no uh, uh, benefit there is no healing power. You see where I'm getting at? Right? There are false teachers. We've talked about that in a lot in this church, and I'm not afraid to talk about that. Right? There are the, the Benny Hens. Right? There are the, 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 the miraculous healers. They don't do any healing. That's what this passage says. There's no blessing. There's no benefit that comes from, from me. I can't do that. However, God does use his people to deliver blessings through. And that's what he's doing with the disciples. And he's saying, look, here's the blessing that I've created out of nothing. It's through your hands. Please distribute it to the crowd. And they do. Jesus serves the people through his disciples. Jesus gives to the people through his disciples. And then after it's all done, it says they ate and they were satisfied. It is the fulfillment of verse 4. How can one satisfy? From what source will one satisfy these people? And he says, look, they were fed and now they're satisfied. They sat under Jesus' teaching for 72 hours. I do not choose to believe that they ate that bread and because they ate that bread alone that they were satisfied. They sat under Jesus' teachings for three days and they ate the bread and then they were completely satisfied. God satisfied the people not by bread alone, but by his word and by his teaching. Uh, Another difference, just really quick, uh, 
there, there were 12 baskets that were left over in chapter 6, and there were seven baskets here. So again, there's a little discredit, like, hey, like these, they don't line up. Like, you know, same story, but was it 12, was it 7? That's not really how it worked. Number one, two different Greek words, right? The, the baskets in chapter 6, there was 12 baskets, but they were like lunch-sized baskets, right? Completely different word in chapter 8, they were like laundry-sized baskets, so the seven baskets that were left over were, were, some say those baskets were big enough to hold an actual man, right? They were woven baskets that held a lot of mass. So these baskets were full of bread, completely different than chapter six, which it was just lunch baskets that were filled up. And wow, there was 12 baskets. How many, how many disciples were there again? Oh yeah, 12. There's just enough to provide for the disciples. Now God shows completely different. He says, look, I'll meet it and I can exceed it. I'll give you what you need and then I'll bless you with more. Seven baskets full. Jesus meets and often exceeds the demand. He gives thanks for it and he gives it to his people. This reminded me of 2 Peter 1, 3, through four, where, where Peter is talking and it says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Talking about Jesus' spirit, his power that has given us all the things that we need that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful nature. He has given us his promise. He has created something out of nothing. He has taken ashes and turned it to beauty. And this is not a a magic trick. And yesterday, I did some magic. And I'm telling you what, I'll tell you right now, I was not ready for the pressures of doing magic tricks for kids. I mean, that kind of pressure, like, you just can't handle that. They guessed all my tricks. They knew exactly how I did them. Number one, I'm a poor magician. So it was a semi-success, but it was also a semi-flop. But what I told them yesterday, no matter what you see, this is just a trick. You know how I do You could probably figure it out. Sometimes you're going to see a magician and you're going to not be able to figure it out. The reality is, is that there's no trick here. This is not, hey, let me pull this bread out of my sleeve and make it appear. He is creating out of nothing. And so when you talk about a miracle, it's not a trick. This, story, this word is true. This is something to hold fast to. This is not just the sleight of hand. This is something that we are given by the power of the Holy Spirit, his divine power granted us to all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what does that mean for us? <clears throat> Verse 9. I'm going to talk about it a second, and then we're going to move on. I don't want to overlook it. It's some information that we need to know, and we're going to look at it next week. I'm actually preaching next week too, so if you don't want to show up, I understand. 
And there were about 4,000 people, so now we know how many. He sent them away. He, he said, look, now you're satisfied. You can go home. You can make it without fainting. And immediately he got in the boat with his disciples, and he went to the district of Dalmanutha. So here we go, done with the miracle, getting the boat on the way. Okay? We're going to look at that next week, where he ends up and who he's talking to. But there was one more thing. I thought, oh, well, that's in the passage. Okay, great. Perfect. Wait a minute. I seem to remember something about Jesus being the bread of life. What, is that? what does that mean? So he is compassionate. He is creatively powerful. His supply meets and often exceeds demand. And finally, what I want you to see out of this passage is he is the bread of life. A very literal meaning to what's going on in this passage is that it shows that Jesus can meet and exceed sometimes a physical demand, right? He can, he can make something out of nothing. He can make the lame walk. He can make the deaf hear. He can make the blind see. And all of this to show this one thing that God revealed to my heart this week is that we need the healer more than we need the physical healing. We need the guy who can do the work more than we need the work. And so I was brought back to John 6 where it talks about being the bread of life. And guess what? It's after the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walks on the water and all of those things. It's the same account. And there's this little story in, in John 6 that says uh, uh, the, between him and a group of people and the disciples. And this group of people are in, uh, I think, Caper- or they went to Capernaum, and they were in, can you throw that map back up by chance? Oh, dude. Uh, they, were, or they were in Bethsaida, okay? So they're in Bethsaida, and uh, he just left there. Jesus leaves and walks on the water, right? He gets over to Capernaum. That's where he was headed. All those people are like, uh, where'd he go? We still want to hang out. They just had the feeding of the 5,000. Remember that. They go <laughs> across the sea. They find Jesus, and they're like, hey, where were you at? We wanted to be with you. We want to hang out with you. And, and Jesus speaks to them. And uh, in John 6, 26, it says, Jesus answered them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So these are the people who were at the feeding of the 5,000 along with the disciples and Jesus' teaching. He says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And then it talks, there's some more dialogue, and they want a sign. They ask Jesus, and they say, Hey, give us a sign to know this is real. Can you? Are you serious? These people just saw the feeding of the 5,000. They were there. They saw it. They come over and they're like, can we have a sign though? And I'm like, that's probably how I am. I get it. I see something. I feel it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, but Lord, can you? They just wanted what their forefathers had. They start talking about Moses and they talk about the manna and they talk about, and he says, look, in 32, He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven, which again shows his humanity. 
He's talking about his father. Every good thing, every blessing comes from his father. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, listen to this, sir, give us this bread always. And I was like, oh, that's exactly what was said in John 4. You back up to John 4, you see the woman at the well. And he says, thirsty woman, listen to me. I will give you water that will never make you thirsty. And she says exactly this, sir, give me this water so I will never be thirsty. It's exactly the same wording. He is the bread of life. He is the water that never runs out. And he tells them, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of miracles who we can watch do and meet these physical needs. All the while, his purpose in doing these things is to show us that we do not need the healing. We do not need the physical need met as much as we need the man who meets those physical needs. And so when I get too wrapped up in my life that I live in day in, day out, right? Husband, father, employee, friend, son, brother, elder. When I start to forget how big the God is that I serve, the God of miracles, and not just physical healing, but the miracle of my salvation, and that's what I've been wrecked with for the last three days, is the fact that Oftentimes, when I think of miracles, I do. I start thinking about those crazy guys on TV who are hitting people with coats and people are falling out and passing out and all that kinds of crazy stuff because they have some physical ailment that they need fixed. But the biggest miracle of all is my salvation, that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. That while I still sometimes walk in my sin and I am prone to wander, that he is faithful and just and he is going to complete the story in my life that he has started. That is a miracle. The miracle of grace that is given day in and day out. Not only the gift of grace and salvation, but the gift of grace that when I mess up continually, that I can come back to him like the prodigal son and say, uh, I'm, I'm in the pit. I'm hanging out with the pigs. I need you, Jesus. And he takes me back every time. The miracle that God would choose to look favorable on me, favorably on me despite my unfaithfulness. When my faith is weak, when I am vulnerable, and when I'm tired and I'm weary, he still continually shows up in my life. That is a miracle the miracle of the bread that the bread of life offers, the miracle that the living water offers, that I would never be hungry, I would never be thirsty, and the miracle of my satisfaction in who he is. And I, as I rest this morning and go, I'm yours. I'm yours. And that continual reminder, the miracle of God's true word, that says in Ephesians 3.20 that he can do immeasurably more than we think or ask. That verse, after understanding Mark 8, blows my mind. That we can think of physical things. I 
we can ask God for healing because we have an upset stomach or a whatever you need healing from. But he can do immeasurably more than what we think or what we ask because he is who he says he is. Jesus gives us the bread that will never, never make us hunger. Jesus is the water that becomes a wellspring of life. And I want to talk about just for a moment the aspect of miracles and what we ask for. We prayed this morning before our church service um, the Morrises, they're traveling, right? She's sick and she's traveling. She's got a stomach bug, right? It's terrible. No one wants a stomach bug anyway. But when you're traveling, it's even worse. And we literally prayed for healing for her, that she would experience stomach comfort instead of stomach discomfort. Well, what does that mean? Like, we do that oftentimes, and we just ask the Lord to heal. Do we believe that the God is the God of miracles? We say that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And look, I'm not trying to freak you out. I'm not trying to get all faith healer here. But I'm just saying, are we like the disciples who are praying expectantly? Or are we just kind of dense sometimes and we just go, ah, uh, well, he did it then, but maybe he wouldn't do it now. I don't really know. You know what I know is that God's word is true. And it says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do I know how he works that out? Do I know that every time I pray and ask for God to heal, uh, uh, is Jess Morris, why am I blanking on her name? Jess Morris, why, if we pray to heal her, do I believe that he'll do it? Yeah, I do today. I do after this week of studying because he can. And if he doesn't, you know what? He's still faithful. Because we can pray and we can ask the God of miracles to do whatever but then when it doesn't happen the way we think it should, or when it does, no matter what, we still sing, it is well with my soul. Because it is his timing, and it is his show. And it just makes us faithful to go and ask, because he wants us to. We are his kids, and he loves us. And so that's my challenge to myself. Man, do I really believe he is who he says he is? Do I really believe that the God of the Bible is true. Man, I, I believe. I believe. And if that causes me to pray differently or read Scripture differently, if that causes me to pray more expectantly, I'm going to do that. I want to do that. And we're going to have the band come up, and we're going to sing a song about the God of miracles. And I want you just to prepare your heart. Because oftentimes when we think about the God of miracles, we start thinking about the crazy stuff. No crazy stuff today. I want your hearts and your minds focused on who God is. I want your hearts and your minds focused on Scripture. I want your hearts and minds focused on the God of the Bible who fed 5,000 people one month and 4,000 people the next month. I want your hearts and your minds focused on the, the, the guy who went to the Syrophoenician woman and said, hey, your daughter... Because of your faith, she's healed. I want you focused on the God 
that you've experienced. Guarantee you that you've seen the Lord work in some pretty mighty ways in your life. Number one, the biggest, salvation. If he's called you to himself, that is a miracle. He has taken you in and called you son and called you daughter. Focus on that miracle. We're going to sing this song. I don't care if you stand up, sit down, turn around, dance on your head. Focus on the words. I was telling these guys, I tried to do the math. I told these guys I listened to the song about 100 times this week. It was probably closer to 70 or 75. Stephen picked it out. I listened to it once. I could not stop listening to it. Because I want to believe so bad that Jesus can do anything. I want to believe so bad that he is the God of miracles. Not to get weird and make it about us, but I just want him to work in my life. Like, I want to stop sinning. I want to stop being a bad dad sometimes, and I want to stop being a bad husband. None of that is possible if I just try in my own strength to just keep behavior modification. I can't do that. But what I want to do is I just want God to come in and touch my heart and change me. He could do that. And this song, it shows that. It doesn't have to be just the crazy stuff. It's the good stuff. It's the way that God works in your life day in and day out. Let's sing it together.